0: Earlier today, President Donald Trump said tariffs have put the United States in a very strong bargaining position with billions of dollars and jobs flowing into our country. And yet cost increases have thus far been almost unnoticeable. If countries will not make fair deals with us, they will be tariff That's according to President Donald Trump's tweet earlier today. Here to help us understand this issue is Brad Setzer. He is the Senior Fellow for International Economics at the Council of Foreign Relations, and he joins us now. Brad, do tariffs put the United States in a stronger bargaining position, let's say vis a vis the Chinese.
2: No, they present China. They present China with a choice. China Uh, will, if it wants to avoid Trump's concessions, have to uh, make some concessions of its own. I think the difficulty is that it is, from the Chinese point of view, and I think from the point of view of most outside observers, a little unclear precisely what Trump wants from China. So in that sense, uh, the U.S. bargaining position is uh, weakened by the lack of clarity about U.S. negotiating goals.
1: Brad, your expertise lies in balance of payments. And right now, I'm struck by the fact that markets are really not responding to these potential additional $200 billion of tariffs. What would the practical effect of them be?
2: I mean, they would be uh, a significant friction to about half of U.S. trade with China. So, uh, total, uh, you know, looking back last year, total U.S. imports from China were about 500 billion. We've put tariffs on 50 billion already. You add 200 billion to that, and you've tariffed about half of trade with China. The tariff level, though, uh, that has been floated on the 200 billion is uh, 10%. And it's hard to get uh, a major shock out of a 10% tariff on $200 billion. You just work through the math. Uh, if everybody pays it, it's about a $20 billion uh, tax that goes to the U.S. Treasury, presumably paid for by some combination of U.S. consumers and U.S. businesses. Uh, and it, that's just not on a scale large enough to generate major macroeconomic shocks. There certainly will be some sectoral complications and I suspect that uh, there may be more pain associated with the coming Chinese retaliation.
0: Brad, if, let's say, the Chinese negotiators were to call Brad Setzer and ask him, what do you really believe the administration wants from these trade talks, how would you respond?
2: I would say that uh, there are there seem to be at least uh, three schools of camp within the Trump administration. I think there is a camp within the Trump administration that believes the tariffs are preferable to almost any plausible deal. They want to put uh, a tariff on trade with China to encourage U.S. firms to, to relocate their supply chains, reorganize their supply chains, and become less dependent on China. So the goal, in some sense, is less to change Chinese behavior and more to convince U.S. firms to restructure their supply chains and at least uh, move them out of China, if not move them to the U.S. I think there's a second school of thought within the administration that wants to see substantive changes to the policies known as China 2025, China's industrial policy, its uh, tech transfer policies, the set of uh, techniques that China is using to build out advanced manufacturing industries like aircraft, like semiconductors, like high-end medical equipment. And they want meaningful changes there, although they haven't articulated precisely what kind of changes would be enough. And then I think there's a third camp that just wants a deal that doesn't want uh, tariffs and is looking to... uh, in some sense, come up with an an optical victory.
1: Yeah, Brad, you said that probably the bigger impact on businesses will come from China's potential retaliatory moves. What would those be?
2: Well, China's threat. You know, China's already put quite substantial tariffs on U.S. soybean exports uh, in response to the to the first round to the fifty billion in tariffs. Uh, China has threatened $60 billion in additional tariffs uh, if the U.S. goes ahead with the $200 billion. Uh, the $60 billion presumably would be at a slight, you know, at the 10% rate, so it's probably not prohibitive. And I would guess, my sense at least, is that China's best targets were included in the $50 billion initial list. Uh, but nonetheless, there's going to be Uh, likely a 10% tariff on most inputs that the U.S. sells to China, and that at the margin, if possible, creates an incentive to substitute away from U.S.-made goods.
1: Brad Setzer, thank you so much for being with us. Really a pleasure having you, as always. Brad Setzer is the Stephen A. Tannenbaum Senior Fellow for International Economics at the Council of Foreign Relations. He also is the former Deputy Assistant Secretary for International Economic Analysis in the U.S. Treasury Department from 2011 to 2015.
0: How do you put together a market outlook that takes into uh, into uh, consequence the, uh, the efforts of trade negotiators, uh, the change in interest rates, and also changes in the valuation of different equity sectors? Well, one thing you do is you turn to Denise Chisholm, the sector strategist and portfolio manager for for Fidelity Investments, based in Boston, but joins us here in our 1130 studios. Denise, thanks for coming in. Much appreciated.
3: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Now, um, I was thinking about your approach, and I thought, Mm -hmm. wow, okay, so here's like a checklist. You take a variety of different measures, and you put them all together to try to get some kind of holistic vision of the market, and then from that, you extract what you believe to be tradable ideas. I wonder if you could just explain some of the things that go into your thinking.
3: Yeah, I think to boil it down, I do historical probability analysis on data, right? So I'm constantly asking the question, hey, whatever theory you have, whatever thesis you have, Is that really true, historically? And if you ask that enough times, and you do the work enough times, that can actually inform your investment opinion on the overall market, and then on individual equity sectors.
1: All right, so let's get down to what's going on today, where we see uh, a little bit of softness in light of the headline saying that President Trump is set to impose 10% tariffs and $200 billion of additional goods from China. The markets aren't down nearly as much as I would expect, given the fact that that seems like a lot.
3: Right, so your take. again, like using historical data to inform a view rather than just giving you my opinion, this is fascinating. So if you plot world trade in nominal dollars and you look at it on a year-on-year basis, we have that data going back to 1948 1948's publicly available data, and you said, I have perfect foresight and I know that it's gonna contract, which is a bottom quartile event. You would be shocked to see that if I quartile that out, that's actually the highest probability of an advancing equity market with the highest average returns. So that to me means one of two things. One is that the equity market actually discounts this in advance. Or two, that the backdrop is actually more important and can overwhelm the individual univariate variable of global trade. Which I think we have both situations going on currently.
0: When you said backdrop, What do you mean by that? Define that backdrop. No,
3: that's a great question. By backdrop, I mean the corporate profit recovery. So I think we are in year two of what could be a four to six year long durable profit recovery because we had a contraction on a global earnings basis in 2016. And you're seeing now estimates do something that they rarely do historically, which usually as you start the year, they start out very optimistic. And then over the course of the year, they come down. You're seeing something, you're seeing them do a hook up, right? So that tells you two things. One is that analysts are underestimating the durability of this recovery and underestimating earnings. And two, it means the valuation levels that we're seeing on those forward numbers are actually more solidified, meaning that now at 16 times next year's earnings, we're at bottom quartile valuation levels since 1990. When you look at historical
1: data, how much do you factor in other countries and what's going on with them other than just the United States? Because there's been this existential question hanging over the markets, how much longer can the U.S. diverge from the rest of the world that seems to be in a worse position?
3: Mm -hmm. No, I think that that's definitely true. So I do look on a global basis, right? So I look at Europe, I look at Japan, and I look at emerging markets. And what you see historically, and again, it can always be that this time is different, but what you see historically is that the U.S. being strong drags other countries and regions up, meaning it lowers the probability of a crisis that comes back to the US stock market. So you can actually see this divergence on a relative basis for quite some time.
0: Speak a little bit more if you can about corporate profits.
3: Mm -hmm. So if you look at that recession that we saw in 2016, right, 2016, what I think fascinates me is that most people think, oh, it wasn't that big of a deal. Uh, It was just really energy and materials. And then actually when you look at the data that wasn't the case, at the then, 10 gig sectors that we saw at the time, you had a median stock earnings contraction in seven out of those 10 sectors. So it was very diffuse. And actually, on a diffusion basis, it was as much of a contraction as we saw in the recession of 1990. So if you just step back and say, forget the corporate tax reform that we put in place. Let's just look at what an average corporate profit recovery looks like. You'll actually see that it lasts four years. Now, the range is pretty wide. It goes between two and six. But then of the 45 variables I looked at, and it's not all the variables in the world, but it's the 45 one. It doesn't correlate to the Fed raising interest rates. It actually correlates to the starting point in bank credit. And that's delinquencies as a percentage of overall loans, bad bad assets as a percentage of assets, however you'd like to... to quantify it.
1: Just 30 seconds. I'm curious from your perspective, do you think that the tax reform brought forward profits and that they're likely to dwindle out and that this could be a different period of time than the past because of that?
3: Mm -hmm. So again, there's not much data on this. We have six instances in history, right? But what you see is exactly history saying confirming what we have seen, which is corporate profits turn the year before corporate tax reform hits because of that investor optimism, or I should say that CEO optimism, and it becomes sticky, right? So in history, you don't historically see the dwindling. It actually sticks. Really, really interesting. Thank you so much for being with us. No,
1: thanks for having me. Denise Chisholm, she is sector strategist at Fidelity, taking a look at those historical data points and putting them all together, saying that Perhaps analysts are underestimating just how strong its recovery will be and how long it will last, PIM. Really interesting.
0: Yes, that's a bull case for stocks.
1: Yeah, despite the calls for recession in 2020 from a number of different firms. I want to turn our focus to self-driving cars. A lot of people thought that this would be the future of driving and the car sharing economy, but there's a major problem. They can't handle rain or sleet or snow. Joining us now, Kyle Stock, senior correspondent for Bloomberg News. I thought your story was fascinating, Kyle. Thank you so much for joining us. So just how unable are these cars able to uh, handle weather?
4: Yeah, it's it's tricky. They're making very slow progress on this front. Um, there's other things that people thought were going to be major stumbling blocks like ethics or other human drivers or algorithms. Um, those are all proving a little bit more easy to deal
0: with. So, Kyle, let's get this straight. When the weather is perfect and there's no traffic, driverless automobiles might actually work just fine. But at those moments when it's cloudy, rainy, snowy, or there's a lot of traffic or a lot of congestion, that's when there might be trouble?
4: Exactly. I mean, there's a reason why they're testing all these things in Phoenix for the most part. Um, It's pretty sunny most of the time. You know? Oh,
1: my goodness. I yeah. mean, honestly, on one hand, it's sort of shocking that this is uh, such a big obstacle at a time when so many people are considering, in a very serious way, a mass adoption of self-driving vehicles. Certainly a
0: lot of money being thrown at this topic.
1: Absolutely. I, I want to talk about where the opportunities are, given that this problem is uh, definitely being worked on by a lot of startups with a lot of sensor companies that are looking for ways to address it. Can you can you talk to that, please?
4: Yeah. I mean there's there's definitely a hardware play and a software play. So, you know, the engineers are tuning the software to sort of help help the sensors make better sense of the world um when there's rain or fog or snow. Um but then they're also, you know, building these these sensors. Uh Waymo, the leading uh self driving company, is build its own sensors, so they say they're iterating every time they, they make a new version of the product and one of the companies I talked to is out at MIT called WaveSense, and they, they have an entirely new approach. They're doing a ground-penetrating radar, literally looking under the road um, to keep the car on track so they don't need to worry about whatever's happening on top of the road in terms of weather.
0: Kyle, this uh, uh, disabuse me of my idea here, but I don't <laughs> think the issue has to do with driverless automobiles. It has to do with traffic. If you're if if you're able to drive in traffic-free conditions, driving is kind of fun, isn't it?
4: It sure is, yeah. And the, well, the other interesting thing is, I think we're almost holding sort of these robot vehicles to a higher standard. We expect them to be better than human drivers. And there's a lot of weather when I'm not comfortable driving. I, don't, I won't speak for you, Pim, but um, we want them to get us there. And you know. In a heavy snowstorm.
0: Yeah, Yeah, right. And the idea is, you know, when it's inclement weather, slow down.
1: Well, hold on a second. I I take a step back here because your story said that even a dusting of snow would be a problem and anything more than that. So I think that uh, that would be just fine for you, Pim, to go out driving in a little bit more than a dusting of snow. Uh, But I do want to talk about the incredible investment, as Pim mentioned earlier, that a lot of major car companies are making in autonomous vehicles. If you have such fundamental problems as this at a time when people do. Hold robots at a higher standard. Does it suggest that perhaps our hopes are a little bit further along than the actuality when it comes to these cars?
4: Yeah, I think that's fair to say. But it's just the opportunity. The market is so huge. Um, you know, the ride—they're talking about a seven trillion dollar rideshare business. That um, you know, these companies and the the investors behind them are dreaming big. So even if they're just, even if they can operate only in a perfect sunny day it still makes sense uh to really be be charging for this if you're a company like Ford or Uber or Waymo um
0: Kyle I would just say all people who have been stuck in one of those automated people movers at an airport please raise your hand at one point or another
4: right. listening to the to the music play over and over again
0: yeah so. This is, is. Do you feel that there's going to be a shakeout from this? I mean, you can use a lot of the technology in cars that are driven by human beings, of course, whether that's blind spot warning or uh, you know, right. uh, braking technology, which is all great. But I mean, do you think that people are going to sort of, as Lisa said, kind of pare back a little of this science fiction?
4: I think the timeline will be adjusted. Um, I think rather than a shakeout, though, what you're going to see, and this is not something we've talked about a lot, is a a rollout based on geography. So the irony here is that some of the tech centers of the world, San Francisco and Seattle specifically, might be the last places to get uh, self-driving vehicles. You're going to see them in the Sun Belt. You're going to see them in Florida. Um, One of the analysts I spoke with said basically when these cars do show up in a place like Boston, they'll be bespoke versions. So they'll have twice as many sensors. They'll be totally over over-engineered just to deal with the heavy weather right. in a way that they won't be um you know in uh, in georgia
0: right all right well we got to leave it there but thanks very much uh, kyle stock our senior correspondent for bloomberg news talking about self-driving automobiles and whether they can really handle the rain the sleet or the snow we'll find out
1: Oil prices have been rather stable considering the backdrop of hurricanes and typhoons and other situations, but perhaps some traders are not taking into account November 4th. That is an important date when sanctions will go into effect on Iran. Here to talk about that, Dr. Ellen Wald, president of Transversal Consulting and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Global Energy Center, as well as Toby Harshaw, editor at Bloomberg Opinion. Uh, Dr. Wald, let's start with you. Why is November 4th such an important date?
5: November 4th is the date at which these sanctions are going to go into effect. And now that it's the middle of September, we are really looking to see how the dominoes are going to fall when it comes to the sanctions, which countries are actually going to stop importing Iranian oil, and which countries are planning to continue. And right now, it looks like China, India, and Turkey are still importing lots of Iranian oil. But also, surprisingly, we now have data that shows that Italy and Spain and possibly even Greece are still importing uh, oil from Iran, even though it's now the middle of September.
0: Toby Harshaw, I want you to come in on this topic of Iran, but add in what's going on with their economy. About 60% of the Iranian economy is centrally planned. It's basically dominated by the oil and gas industry.
6: Yeah, and it's dominated by... uh... Uh, the Iranian Guards, which uh, are a, supposedly a military force, but they become the most dominant force in the economy. Um, the, uh, there's no overestimating the, the effect that oil has on their economy. The question is, with their exports, how much of that money they can bring back. Uh, last time with the sanctions, uh, the money was held in escrow by countries like India and China, and Iran could only use the money to to uh, to buy products in those countries and have them sent back and they were actually buying products in China that they didn't even really need so as Ellen will tell us that's one of the big questions about how these sanctions are reinstated this time around
3: so
1: Ellen just to talk a little bit about plugging the holes and sort of creating a more airtight uh, system of sanctions I'm wondering if the US administration can do that successfully what would the effect be on the oil market on the price of crude in a way that perhaps Perhaps people aren't factoring in right now?
5: Well, if the U.S. can really enforce these sanctions to the maximum to plug these holes, there have been holes in terms of um, Iran's uh, exporting of condensates, which is a very light type of crude oil that some people uh, see as or, or classify as crude oil and other people don't technically classify it as crude oil. But if they can plug all of these holes, if they can really get the uh, Iranian exports down, I would say, by 1.5 million barrels. If they can eliminate that from the market, then we could really be in for some serious tightening in the oil market, mostly because at the same time we're also seeing continued drops from Venezuela. Uh, U.S. production isn't increasing at quite the rate that we thought it was going to be. And so the question is really, can Russia and Saudi Arabia, the two countries that have the most spare capacity, can they really increase to combat these drops. And then the other question is, if they can, will they? And that's all gonna come down to that December 3rd uh, OPEC meeting.
1: So in other words, if they don't, that means the price of crude could rise substantially.
5: Would rise substantially but it, there's there's also the speculation effect so even if we we do have enough crude oil to go around there's always this effect of people thinking that we don't necessarily have enough and that can push the prices up there's also the matter of the right type of crude oil do we have enough uh, heavy crude coming in that's really kind of a hot commodity now because there's so much uh, there's kind of an overflow of light crude coming out from the US and and from from fracking so we need to have the right type of crude. So crude quality matters, as people like to say. But there's also the issue of um, demand. And what, one of the interesting things on the horizon is that uh, OPEC has recently revised its demand figure. So they think that demand is actually going to, um, to be less than they thought in 2019. And that could actually uh, kind of arrest some of the higher crude prices.
0: Toby, maybe just add your thoughts about what's happening to the Iranian economy as a result of these uh, sanctions and additional sanctions. I just want to note it's an, uh, about 82 million people, that's the population of, uh, of Iran, and unemployment, uh, if you look at unemployment levels, maybe 15 to 29, about a quarter of the potential workforce is out of work.
6: Yeah, and it always depends who's who's compiling those Correct. statistics. Uh, if anything, it's probably higher. The inflation statistic put out by the Iranian government is an absolute joke. Um, it's vastly higher than whatever they're going to say. So the
0: combination of high inflation, high unemployment, and now additional sanctions, will it have the intended effect on the Iranian government?
6: Um, I don't see it as having much of an effect at all um, I don't think that they have much choice except to uh, d- you know to bear it to buckle up and and it's going to happen um, the, it's a political gamble on the part of the government um, people are unhappy about it but then um, they can always use further hardship as another reason that America is still the great Satan um, and, and you know appeal to patriotism and things like that
1: Toby are there enough people in the administration administration with knowledge of the Iran situation, who could bridge some of these loopholes and, and sort of plug them up and make it more airtight?
6: Yeah, absolutely. This is professional staff for the most part that deals with it. Uh, it's the Treasury Department that's in charge. There's a lot of Treasury lifers, um, long term employees who are very, very, very savvy about this, you know, and this is one of those instances in which, you know, to my mind, anyway, the Trump administration is, is pretty set on doing the right thing.
0: Ellen Wald, are there any examples that you can point to that show us that sanctions actually achieve their goal?
5: Well, that's that's the big question uh, here and you know some people will you can always find people who will argue that they do and you can also find people who will argue that they won't and many people say that the sanctions did achieve their goal when they led to the negotiations for the initial JcpoA I would add, add one thing though with regard to the Iranian economy and and that's that the Iranian economy was not doing well even before these sanctions were instituted they they've really kind of shot themselves in the foot in a sense in Iran um, politically. politically. Politically and and economically, particularly with respect to the oil industry, because they have very, very deep uh, and institutionalized. distrust of foreign uh, oil companies that could have come in and really helped get their oil industry going. Uh, Yes, there was a lot of uh, fear on the part of foreign oil companies, but there were some who really were willing to come in. Total was one. But the Iranian uh, kind of ideology makes it very, very difficult for that to happen. So they were going down a bad path even before these sanctions.
0: I want to thank you both very much for joining us. Dr. Ellen Wald is the president of Transversal Consulting, a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Global Energy Center. And our thanks also to Toby Harshaw, editor for Bloomberg Opinion.
1: Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast.
0: You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer.